Hey, welcome to the third episode of Dear Seekers. I'm your host, Sasha Xiao. One of the selfish benefits of hosting Dear Seekers is that I get to speak with women I long admire, oftentimes from far. Stephanie Ayop from the first episode and Alyssa Bertram from the second one are two incredible women who I'm lucky enough to call friends. But today is a little bit different. I got to chat with Mackenzie Seal, co-founder of Cotton. I have been admiring her and maybe a little bit stalking for quite a while now. For those who doesn't know Cotton, it's a Canadian clothing brand that celebrates the basic pieces with the best Egyptian cotton. With a simple belief, high-quality pieces shouldn't cost a fortune. Three best friends decided to start an accessible clothing line right here in Toronto. Alongside Mackenzie's husband Ben and best friend Rami, Mackenzie was named 30 Under 30 by Forbes in 2017. That's pretty awesome, right? During our chat, she expresses how she turned being a master of none into her own strong advantages, and how cotton was started from their parents' basement. All the way to growing 350% month over month, and she also shares the struggles that she experienced as an entrepreneur, a creative entrepreneur, and a female creative entrepreneur. What would you like me to call you? Yeah, you can call me Mackenzie, Maxie. Okay, Z sounds good. Sounds pretty cool. Let's do it.、Um, so, were you growing up in Toronto or? Yeah,、you're、I was born, here? born and raised in Toronto, and so were both of my parents.、Um, so I really feel a true connection to the city.、Um, I lived in New York for two years, but I always knew that I would come back eventually. And you went to Ryerson, right? Where、yeah. Did you study? So I went to Ryerson for fashion communication, which was really good because it taught me a lot of diverse skills. When I came out of school, I kind of felt like I was kind of good at a lot of things, but not really good at any one thing, which was kind of scary. And I didn't know what direction to go in. I was really interested in photography, but not so much shooting photos myself. I loved graphic design, and I. Dabbled in it a bit, but I wasn't really specialized in the technical skill of graphic design. And then when it came to product, I loved putting together outfits and researching trends and stuff like that. But I never saw my path as being like an actual product designer. A little fun fact here: the saying "a jack of all trades is a master of none." Is almost a negative phrase currently in use. However, the original version was longer and had a totally different meaning. Originally, the saying goes, "A jack of all trades is a master of none," but oftentimes better than a master of one. The reason I'm sharing this is because Mackenzie's success actually have proven that having multiple interests but not being an expert in one particular field could create advantages. So. I kind of happened upon this contest when I was in school, 
And Holt Renfrew was doing this search for the next contemporary correspondent. It was basically like they were wanted a blogger to write once a week on their and website. And you were doing school at that time? Yeah, then? so okay. I was 19 and I was interning at a really small graphic design agency. And my boss there got this press release from them and she was like, oh, you should apply for this. This would be so fun for you. I was like, yeah, this sounds really cool. So... I applied and I got chosen as one of the two finalists in Toronto. So there was a Toronto competition, a Vancouver and a Montreal competition. So I had to do like six weeks of fashion challenges where I had to do like a walk off and film it and do all these really embarrassing, (laughs) really embarrassing fashion challenges. And then they would put them up on the website and put them in the windows at Holt. Oh my God. to vote. So you and the other person, the two finalists, so you guys had to compete? Yeah, exactly. So people had to vote for their favorite. Oh, that's, oh my God, it's a voting system? Yeah, and this was kind of before influencers Mm -hmm. or Instagram or any of that stuff. So it was just totally new to even try to do this kind of stuff for me anyways. But I ended up winning, and so through that, I got to write a blog for Holtz, and I got to, like, go to a lot of their events and meet some of the people that worked there, and that's how I met Barbara Atkin, who was the fashion director for 30 years at Holtz, and she became a really important mentor for me and still is. I ended up getting an internship directly with her and then working with her once I graduated at Ryerson, but... It was there that I started to actually realize like what types of jobs existed in the fashion industry beyond just photographer, editor, um, fashion designer. And I was getting to make mood boards and getting paid for it. And I was like, this is so cool. This is my dream job. So that was a really amazing first experience. Mackenzie's father is a photographer. So growing up, she was exposed to all kinds of visual components. I would go to art shows and look at books. And I, I had my dad had like Vogue books that I would look through. And so I always was really interested in kind of like the visuals and everything surrounding a fashion brand. And that's kind of what I came to realize as I was at Holtz and through school that I just love like putting all those puzzle pieces together to make the big picture and being kind of good at a lot of things helps you to do that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it does make sense. Like you're talking about you love the product side, the photography side, but you don't mm-hmm. really want to specialize in one field. Mm-hmm. So that's kind of like put a whole brand together. Yeah, exactly. So you work at Holes for how long? So I was with Barb in the fashion office for, I guess, around three years. And so in trend forecasting, I was basically doing a lot of research about what was happening in the world and what was affecting trends and was happening on the runways and then we would create reports that would go to the buyers so that they had a better idea of what to look for when they got into the showrooms and then there were other things like helping to style some of the books and stuff like that but those trend books were kind of the core job um, in the fashion office and then I ended up moving into the brand strategy office at Holtz which was working with Alexandra Weston and she is really interested in ethical brands. So 
that's where I started getting exposure to ethical fashion and doing tons of research to try to find cool ethical brands because we were building this area at Holtz called H Project. Mm, yeah, which, I heard about that. Yeah, so they just sell brands that have some sort of give back. Um, and in the beginning, it was really hard to find cool brands. And a lot of them had a similar kind of bohemian aesthetic. But that's kind of where I started getting interested in that side of things. And if we go back to for a little bit, how did mm -hmm. you uh, make the decision? Was it like the job was offered to you or is opportunity just laid out there or you realize, oh, maybe branding is something I'm interested in? How mm -hmm. did you make that switch from being in the forecasting department mm -hmm. to the branding department? Um, fashion direction and trend forecasting is a very, very small part of the fashion industry. So there are probably only like five jobs in Canada in that speciality. So working in the fashion office was really like a dream come true for me, but it was just me and Barb. So I knew that there was, if I ever wanted to be Barb, I had to take kind of a longer path around and learn other things before I could get to that point. And I didn't have as much of a hand in like the graphic design side of things and the photography side of things. So I got to do a little bit more of that and working with fashion designers and putting together like interesting events and stuff when I was working with Alexandra. But I shortly after then moved to New York and the job that I got there was at a branding studio. So it was working with a lot of different clients and that was really something that I was interested in testing out was what does the studio side of things look like? Mm. So then I really got an immersive experience in creating brands from scratch right. um, and also working at a small company because when I started, there were only five of us there, which was completely different than working at Holt Renfrew, which isn't a huge company, but it's still mm -hmm. quite still corporate. smaller. How did it come about that you moving to New York? Because you just mentioned about you got the job and you moved there. Mm -hmm. um, but was it like actively searching for a job in New York or was the job was there and then you decided to move to New York to take that opportunity? Yeah. It was really happenstance. I, I always dreamed about moving to Europe and that was kind of my... I loved all the aesthetics in Europe and I wasn't like dreaming of this life in New York, although... There was a part of me that was just interested in what was happening there. But I was traveling for work, actually going to a trade show. And I met the creative director at the agency that I ended up getting a job with. And we hit it off. And he was looking for somebody to be the brand director at the agency. So, yeah, it was just kind of an opportunity that came up. And I knew that I couldn't pass it up or I would always regret it. So... pretty amazing like two weeks later I was out moving and two weeks yeah it was really fast wow yeah so and then that was sort of the catalyst for everything that I'm doing now mm -hmm. and I got to meet so many amazing people there and I was lucky because a lot of my friends from Ryerson had already moved to New York so I had a network mm -hmm. existing there so it was pretty easy to just make the move right and I was like 24 so nothing to lose why yeah. not give it a try 
a lot of artists or entrepreneurs in Toronto or in Canada in general, or especially in fashion, um, have this mindset or this belief that you have to move somewhere else before you can actually make it happen in Toronto or Canada.、Mm-hmm. Um, what's your thought on that?、Um, I think it. Really depends on what industry you're in and what you want to do in the future. But even at that time when I moved there, which was in I guess 2013, um, yeah, 2013, I feel like it was even different then because now there are a lot of eyes on Toronto and Drake has done a lot、mm-hmm. for us and a lot、right. of musicians and artists have. Shouted out Toronto a lot, so people are interested. But I do think in the past it's always been sort of you move to New York, you make connections, and then even if you move back, people in Toronto would kind of appreciate you more if you、mm-hmm. had that stamp on your resume. Right, right.、Um, but in New York, has that special thing where kind of anything can happen, and you can run into anyone, and you can like. We did a project with、um, the artist Julian Schnabel, and he has this incredible pink house in the West Village. And I ended up being in his house and like getting a tour of his studios and his indoor pool and all this crazy、really? stuff with Julian Schnabel, which is like one of those things that could only ever happen、right. in New York. So there are a lot of lot more chance encounters、mm-hmm. and so many more opportunities in fashion because there's just so many more jobs. But that being said, I think there are so many talented people in Toronto, and so it's a really great place to get started. And there's a small entrepreneur community that is really supportive of one another, and it doesn't feel as competitive, or it's it feels more kind of like inclusive because everybody's kind of in the same boat, and we're all kind of like. Second tier popularity. That's、mm-hmm. how I think of Toronto. As like, <laughs> yeah, nobody. When you think back on high school, like people who are first tier popularity, or usually it's like second tier popularity people that are a little cooler. Right, right, right. <laughs> and I always thought that Toronto was always just trying to be like New York, and that was what made Toronto not feel very cool. But these days, I think we're starting to、yeah. develop our own identity and feel comfortable with our own identity. Separate from New York, and not、right. every restaurant has to be like a copy of one in New York. And、totally. every shop is like designed just like this cool place in the West Village. It's we have our own thing happening here. So, what what do you think is our own thing though? Because for the longest time, Toronto or Canada in general have this kind of like awkward position.、Mm-hmm. Um, we have the history from Europe. We have the influence from Europe.、Mm-hmm. Um, at the same time, we're so beside this like. Gigantic brother, New York,、mm-hmm. uh, has so much influence on us, but we try to shy away from it, and then、um, we want to be the, with the cool brother. Yeah. But at the same time, the cool <laughs> brother doesn't really want to be with us. Yeah.、Exactly. And then we're like, oh, we want to play, but we can't really do that. Yeah. So, what do you think is happening right now? I think I think our diversity is really the like core strength of what we have as an identity and. People from all different backgrounds and all different perspectives, like coming together to create new things that look and feel different than the stuff that's coming out of other cities.、Um, yeah, we're a little bit maybe more humble or just like a little more laid back. 
And everything here is like a bit more slow pace of a slow pace than New York. But at the same time, we still like get shit done. Mm-hmm. Um, so I don't know. It's still really developing. But I think it's the mix of all these cultures and then also the mix of a lot of different industries that work together like music and fashion and art and design and architecture like because each of those little communities is so small we kind of have to like band together have to kind of support each other yeah and so did you feel very exclusive when you stay in new york was that kind of the vibe you were getting um i think everybody there is pretty supportive too and there's so many so many creative people there and like the proximity to the top tier of talent is much closer like mm-hmm. there's always an opportunity to like get to somebody through a friend of a friend but yeah the pace is really intense there's not a lot of work-life balance is that why you decided to move back or yeah my family lives here and I I'm really close with my family and I always knew that I would kind of want to be in the same city as them so that was a big thing And then just this pace of life and being able to, like, have a little bit of a personal life and a professional life was important to me. So I I also just really love being Canadian and all of the things that our country stands for are different than the things that the U.S. stands for. So I think I always knew that I would want to, like, raise my family here and stuff. Plus, once we decided that we wanted to start our own business... Just from a legal perspective and visas and all that, it was much easier to do it here. Mm-hmm. And Ben and I moved into my parents' basement when we started, which really? we couldn't do if we were what? paying New York rent. Um, so. so, Mackenzie made a move, came home, and started cotton with the two guys, Rami and Ben. One was her best friend, and the other later became her husband. So how did you, Ben and Rami, like how, Rami or Rami? Like, Rami. Rami, yeah. okay. Sorry, um, Rami. <laughs> so how did three of you meet? Yeah, so Rami and I just had some social connections and we had met at parties a couple times in Toronto. And we both happened to move to New York like within a span of two weeks. And I guess Rami saw on LinkedIn that I changed my... Location or job title? to New York. And he messaged me and he was like, oh, I just moved to New York too. We should meet up and go for brunch or something. So we did and we became friends right away. And he kind of just like easily joined into my little friend group there. And Ben ended up coming to visit Rami one weekend. And I was having a housewarming party and he came and then kind of that's how we met Mm -hmm. and the rest... The rest of Rami history. tried to set Ben up with my best friend that oh, night. Oh, really? Yeah. Oh, which so luckily, that was how he started? Yeah, which luckily didn't work out. Um, so, yeah. And then the three of us just became friends and we loved to talk about business ideas. Rami and I were both there for around two years and Ben ended up moving and was there for a year. So Ben was in Toronto at that time? Yeah. Okay. So he moved... Um, like six months after we met he moved to New York and then together there for a year and then the three of us all kind of moved back Rami left first then Ben and then I was the last woman standing and I came back in March of 2015 
did you guys talk about the idea of cotton when you were in New York, or was the idea kind of developed when you moved back to Toronto? Yeah, we started kind of talking about it and started initial planning at the end of 2014. At that time, it was just like a small project to try to make a better t-shirt. Um, and Rami's background is Egyptian, and he was in Egypt for a family wedding when we kind of brought up this idea. So he was like, I'll check out what's going on here and see if I can source some cotton because Egyptian cotton is the best in the world. Mm-hmm. And it kind of just went from there. I just want to kind of like gravitate mm. towards like, how did it all start? Yeah. Who was the one saying, oh, maybe we can do basic t-shirt to make it good quality. And then how was the conversation started? Mm-hmm. I think it kind of evolved over a few weeks or months but I was working in design Ben was working in tech and Rami was working in finance but within the music industry so those three industries like a lot of industries in New York everybody dresses really casually and pretty much everybody at the office everybody when we would go out to the bar everybody at brunch was just wearing like black and white Mm t-shirts um the guys were anyways so and ben's closet was full of t-shirts but he had a lot of these like hanes supreme collab tees that were ten dollars and really bad quality and then he had one rag and bone t-shirt and one alexander wang t-shirt and he would only wear them to go out at night because they were like his good tees and so i think that was kind of the starting point because I kept throwing out all these bad Hanes t-shirts you were in charge of his closet like (laughs) throwing out his stuff (laughs) they would get like grotty and we were cleaning out our wardrobes yeah we would just throw them out that's what I do with my boyfriend too exactly but we were both kind of saying I mean there's no reason that this nice quality t-shirt has to cost 80 or 100 dollars that seems a bit extreme so we were like is I wonder if we could make this same quality and also a more, usually that fit would be a little bit more contemporary, but charge a reasonable price that isn't $10, but also isn't $80. So that was kind of the beginning because it was like, if you love a t-shirt, you should be able to just Mm -hmm. have multiple of that one t-shirt in your closet. And t-shirts shouldn't be something that you wear for a special occasion. Exactly. Yeah. And no matter what, no matter how good quality a t-shirt is, like you are going to have to throw it out eventually because it's one of those things that you just wear every day and it gets worn out. You're going to spill on it. You're going to life things that happen in a t-shirt. So you shouldn't have to be so precious with it, but also you shouldn't have to wear something that's like scratchy and unflattering Mm -hmm. because it's the thing that you wear every single day. Right. So That was kind of, I guess, the impetus of thinking about, like, what is the middle ground here? Mm -hmm. And then once we started, like, researching Egyptian cotton, then we learned so much about the garment industry and especially the Egyptian cotton industry, how it was declining in output because of fast fashion. And so many brands were going to Chinese or Indian cotton, which were lot cheaper Mm -hmm. and also lower quality we kind of explain it to people that egyptian cotton is kind of like champagne or cognac it can only be grown in the nile delta because of the actual environmental conditions of Mm -hmm. that region so it can't 
be replicated anywhere else. And basically a lot of the farmers in that region, which is like the little triangle where the Nile splits and goes into the Mediterranean, a lot of those farmers were flooding their fields to grow rice because it was an easier crop for them. And with this kind of move to fast fashion and not as many people were buying Egyptian cotton, but once they flood their fields, they can't go back to growing cotton for like a hundred years or something really? so it was essentially in danger of becoming extinct mm-hmm. if all of these farmers were just forget it we're growing rice so that kind of became our mission was to like create relationships with the farmers and also create awareness about Egyptian cotton and kind of expand the brand of Egyptian cotton. But it does have a cachet. A lot of people know already that when you say Egyptian cotton, oh, that's good quality cotton. Mm -hmm. It's because it has longer staple and which means it's more durable and softer and all these things. But it's not as much used in clothing as it is in sheets and stuff like that in North America. So... That was kind of the initial process of becoming also an ethical brand was just figuring out the manufacturing process. And it was just a given to us that we weren't going to work with people that. So at first the idea wasn't there. It was just idea. Just wanted to have like a very basic high quality Mm t-shirt. And then through research actually got into more to knowing more about the industry, the manufacturing part. Mm -hmm. And now the whole branding started coming together. Was that something? Exactly. So when we first started talking about it, Egyptian cotton wasn't even really in the mix. But then Rami being Egyptian and Egyptian cotton being like the best quality cotton we could find, that kind of became like the birthplace of our brand and everything. So now everything's really based around Egyptian cotton as a starting point from Mm -hmm. the ethical side and from the product side. So I guess the name cotton is that Mm -hmm. also kind of like take the sound of cotton yeah so k-o-t-n is the english phonetic spelling of the arabic word really yeah so it's not just like i thought you guys just like oh let's make like a name that's unique and also just exact pronunciation is like the cotton that's so interesting so if an egyptian person wrote cotton in our alphabet it would be spelled k-o-t-n and we have an arabic version of our logo too which is just cotton Cotton, in arabic so yeah that was kind of really the starting point of everything and it continues to be the starting point of everything we do And it sounds like the journey was pretty organically that developed by you were doing branding and Rami was doing more the operation and finance part and Ben mm-hmm. was more, you know, the digital, tech guy, yeah. digital. And it sounded like a dream team that, mm-hmm. you know, accidentally you guys put it together. How you divide different duties and different, you know, each of you can take on, but at the same time not overlapping. Mm-hmm. And they can, because one is your best friend, one of your best friends, and one is your husband. Yeah. So it's kind of like, you know, the dream team at the same time could be a disaster if you actually don't have a routine for everybody to work together. Yeah, totally. In the beginning, it was a lot harder, I think. It is a dream team, and we do have, all have very different areas of expertise, but in the beginning, we were all just coming at it from such different perspectives, and we all had different priorities. So it was hard to value the other person's point of view when you're trying to stand behind what what you think has to happen. But we've come a long way in two years and just learning how to deal with each other. And 
now it's really helpful because now that we have teams, the buck stops with each one of us in those respective areas. So everyone can add it in their opinion, but we at least have super defined rules that helps us to come to decisions faster and divide up the work. Mm-hmm. And so at the beginning, what kind of things that would be something you guys would be debating or discussing or even fighting about? Mm-hmm. Oh my gosh, so many things. Uh, <laughs> um, I I mean, one thing was, which was a bigger thing, I guess, was that we had, we, we launched with three styles of t-shirts and then we added some colors and then, well, we added gray, that was it. And then we decided to do three women's t-shirts. So we kind of dabbled in women's and we released these tees and it went well. The first three t-shirts were for women were selling, but it was just the three of us. We didn't have any investment. We were kind of bootstrapping the whole thing with our own savings, also paying the bills by doing freelance work. And so we realized that it was actually Rami's idea to just axe women's moving forward and focus on menswear because we could do a lot fewer items and create a story because every man kind of has the same basics in his closet, yeah. whereas women have so much variation and we have a lot more variation in body type and stuff like that. So we decided to just discontinue our women's t-shirts and then we added 10 styles for men and kind of positioned it as unisex, but men's were first. And so that up until September of this year, it was like that. And then we had more money, we had more resources and a bigger team. So we decided to do women's wear properly, which still isn't even a fraction of what we think it will be in the future, but we were able to release like 16 styles and a variation of colors and different fabrics and stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, so at first so, you wanted to like incorporate women's collection right away. Yeah. And so, then the two guys are like, oh, no, no, no. Maybe step back is a lot of like, you yeah, know, details need to get exactly. worked out. And I was emotional about it. And I like wanted to have women's stuff because I wanted to wear it myself. But also because I knew that women have so much buying power, online and just in general we shop a lot right because um, men usually the retention rate are pretty like i'm i'm not sure exactly that what's the number mm-hmm. but i assume would be lower than women's retention rate mm-hmm. i think if i don't know ben would probably be better at answering this for us specifically but getting guys to buy in in the beginning is a little bit tougher but men will buy multiple of one item which helped us a lot and was a good strategic move on Rami's part to say, let's focus on men's. We've seen it where someone will buy nine, three packs of t-shirts. They'll buy one, know they like it, and then just go all in. Mm -hmm. Whereas like we don't shop that way as much. We don't have as many multiples in our wardrobe. It's a generalization, but for the most part, I would say that's true. Even looking at like my underwear drawer versus Ben's, he only has like 16 pairs of underwear and they're all the exact same. Mm-hmm. And I have like 40 pairs and they're all totally <laughs> right? different. Yeah. Um, yeah, same. Like I don't mind throwing the story of my boyfriend. You know, like Stephen loves Cotton's mm-hmm. underwear. And then since I got him the first pair, now he has been the biggest fan. He doesn't even wear other brands anymore. Yeah. So, so I good. think... <laughs> 
And he, oh, I think I'm going to leave that story. Oh, yeah. he's going to kill me. And I think once they hooked on a brand, they mm-hmm. become really, really loyal. Yeah, exactly. They don't really like move around and try out different brands. And then, um, especially for my boyfriend, like, who is like a tech guy, kind of like a behind the scenes, they become really, really loyal to one brand if they really like it. For sure. Yeah, and I think in the end, that was a really, really smart decision for us to focus on that. Um, But it's also great now that we have added women stuff. We see women coming in and they're interested in stuff for themselves and they'll end up buying something and then they'll just add in a few items for their boyfriend or, oh, my husband needs new underwear, so I'll just like throw these into my order. So I think it's the future for us is definitely having like that integration of men and women shopping together and picking up all their essentials at the same time. Mm -hmm. That was one big thing that we had to decide on as a team that we had disagreements about. But ultimately, we deferred to Rami's judgment because he was responsible for our finances and like looking at the big picture and it was a really good decision in the end Mm -hmm. and what was kind of the vision you had for cotton from the beginning and it has that vision been evolving along the years or Mm -hmm. pretty much hasn't changed much it's been evolving but i think our vision from the beginning was to eventually build out a brand that was less of a fashion line and more of a kind of luxury utility items so just elevated things that you can use every single day and so that would go beyond just clothes and the plan is that it will eventually become a complete lifestyle brand with home products and and clothing for the whole family but all kind of starting with Egyptian cotton. There's so many things that you can make with cotton, like sheets and towels and sweatshirts, and then also like button-up shirts and denim and canvas and it, it's yeah. Kind so of cotton endless. is kind of like the foundation. What kind of boss are you? Are you that kind of <laughs> boss? Is like very you know detail, like very professionalism in trying to make sure everything is in line with the brand, or you are pretty hands-off mm-hmm. to. I'm not that detail-oriented. I'm not super interested in all of the little little things or like, I don't think I'm a perfectionist with that kind of stuff. But yeah, it's, I think one of the hardest things about growing a business is right now we're in the transition time of giving up doing things every day and transitioning into more like managing other people who do the things and trying to get a bigger picture. So you know, giving yourself some time away from putting up a Christmas tree in the window or like setting up pop-up shops to actually think about the big picture is a big challenge um, that we're trying to figure out. So I, I think How many still, employees do you have now? We have 10 people in our back office. Oh my and gosh. And then we have five employees in the store. So you started from your parents' basement. Yeah. Just- Started from the bottom now. <laughs> yeah, I know. Like we should play that song right now. <laughs> now we're here. Started from the bottom now. My whole team. How did it all happen? I mean, according to Forbes, you guys are growing every month by three hundred fifty percent. It's scary to me, and yeah. at the same time, so exciting and proud because you mm-hmm. guys are a Toronto and Canadian brand. But how did that all happen? 
And how are you feeling know. about this all? <laughs> I don't know. I think um, it let's, was okay. Let's walk back. Like yeah. you guys are in the basement. Oh, oh. <laughs> we have Dash here. <laughs> oh, he's going Sorry. back up. So um, you guys are. How long were you guys in your your parents' basement for? We lived in my parents' basement for, I guess, like just under a year. Um, and we got married in that time, so we were like married and then moved back to the basement. <laughs> Um, but... That's so cute. During that time, Ben and I were doing freelance and we got connected to some really great people and did websites and brands and stuff for them while we were building cotton on the side. That was a really good opportunity to just feed ourselves but also have the flexibility and time to put into cotton. From the beginning, it was really important to us to create a brand that was like really true to who we are as people and friends and, and kind of communicate that like our brand is human and that there's real people behind it and there's real people behind the clothes. And so I think hopefully that resonated with people and that's part of what has helped us grow into the place that we're in today. We also, yeah, got a lot of opportunities from bigger brands and we've done some partnerships with brands like Red Bull or we did some like custom hoodies for Pinterest and so it's nice to be recognized by bigger brands like that. And the Red Bull collaboration that we did, they actually threw an event in our store and they really like supported the collaboration. So it was nice to have that kind of support from a much did bigger Did you reach out to them or machine. they reach out to you guys? We were connected through another small business in Toronto. And so it was, it was like a year long conversation <laughs> that ultimately resulted in this collaboration for their three days in Toronto music festival and really awesome. So I think support from people like that, we've had tons of support from press and that's been really helpful and people are interested in telling the story Why about do you think it's that cotton. Though? And I think, yeah. What's the secret sauce for cotton? I think the story behind the brand is strong so press is interested in that side of things it's not just another clothing line it's more we have a bigger mission behind what we're trying to do so that's helped us to get press and we just had a really successful black friday campaign where we raised money instead of going on sale so we put 100 percent of the proceeds towards raising money to build an elementary school in the region where we grow the cotton and we made our goal and we had more orders than we'd ever had really um that's actually something i, I we mm-hmm. wanted to talk to you about how did this building school happen i mean mm-hmm. back to my last question i still feel like it's impressive like you guys have been doing this you know only for like a few or a couple of years mm-hmm. and then it's been growing tremendously mm-hmm. and then now you're building school and then this is your second school right yeah so when we first started, we, from the very, very beginning, we start, Rami, like, went and met cotton farmers, and he got fleas, like, going <laughs> to cotton farms and, you know, interacting with the people on the ground, and so kind of trying to listen to them and find out what their life was like and what they needed help with, 
And the main thing at that point was that the Egyptian government had just cut all government subsidies to the cotton farmers, which most people don't know this, but even the American cotton industry is heavily subsidized by the government and it creates a lot of jobs, but the government helps to support like the upfront costs that are involved in growing the cotton before it's sold. So once those subsidies were cut for Egyptian cotton farmers, it was really hard for them to pay for the labor and the seeds and the soil and all of that. We gave them private subsidies. Basically, we picked like eight farmers and we just gave them soil and seeds and stuff to help them in the beginning stages and we promised them a guaranteed price for their cotton once it had been picked. That made sense at the time and since the government has reintroduced the subsidies so their needs have grown and changed and just in conversations with the people there we found that education is the most prevalent issue in those small rural communities because children will have to travel like two, three hours to get to the nearest school. And so that means that most of them just don't go. We met with this organization that builds schools in rural areas and in learning from them and understanding the research that they've done. Like we just thought that education is really the best way to help these families to move out of poverty and educate their children so that they can kind of like bring them into the new generation. So we started to save money from every single sale that we made, a small portion of it to build the first school. The first school is a 33 student school in the Nile Delta that we open in September and there are still like thousands and thousands of children that need access to school there. Like all 33 of these kids just weren't going to school before. So it's pretty, it feels impactful. And yeah, now we've raised enough money to build the second one. Oh my God, that's amazing. From everybody that purchased over Black Friday weekend. Yeah, I really wanted to congratulate you guys. Thank you. That's just, that's just amazing. Especially with the, uh, the price that you guys are offering to the customers are actually not very high. Mm-hmm. It's very affordable. Uh, and then at the same time, you can actually support three of you and employees and mm-hmm. now building school mm-hmm. just within this short period of time. So what's next for Cotton and uh, for yourself as well? Yeah. Do you have anything planned? We, we have a lot of plans, but we want to continue to improve the quality and add more styles. And so... We're really going to focus a lot of our attention on that Mm -hmm. this year. And then we'll also, we're also planning to launch a home collection Mm -hmm. um, at some point at the latter half of 2018. You told me you guys are going to bring some like pieces into the women collection. Yeah. Like Oxford's shoes and then underwear. Yeah. We'll be adding some more, some more styles. Um, Kind of every two months, we plan to drop a small collection of product, and those will be based on new fabrics that we develop, focusing online, building content, building product. Mm-hmm. What other things you've learned along the years as an entrepreneur and as a woman entrepreneur? Um, I would say... One of the things that I've learned and I'm trying to learn right now is just how to successfully manage people um, is really the biggest challenge. Figuring out 
and feeling comfortable with that transition from doing everything yourself to going through a day where you kind of feel like, I didn't do anything today, but really you're managing people, answering questions, like sitting in meetings and, and doing all of those things that are required to run the business, but it's a weird transition phase that you never really get to experience as an employee. Even in my last job, I was managing people, but it was just a, a really different experience. So I'd say that's something I I have learned and I'm continuing to learn. And then I think as an entrepreneur and as a female entrepreneur, it's a challenge to just manage your emotions and your mental health. I mean, it happens all the time. Like me, Rami, and Ben are going through these ups and downs like constantly and wondering if we're doing a good job and if, you know, if we can take this thing to the next level and how we're going to improve our product. And there's so many questions constantly and so many times that we're questioning ourselves. Um, But you kind of just have to like keep your head down and keep working and moving forward. Pushing ahead is the main thing and especially in creative rules there's actually this really good video that Ben showed me by Ira Glass from um, This American Life and it's called The Gap and he talks about kind of this gap between when you're a creative and when you're first starting out you started into your career because you have really good taste and you have a vision for something but sometimes the work that you're putting out doesn't match up with that vision and the only way that you can get to that point where your output matches your taste level is just by doing constantly and putting out a huge volume of work so every time you put something out you get a little bit closer to that place where you feel happy with it and I think that's like an ongoing challenge for creatives is being content with your own output um but the more and more we do like the closer we get to that place where we're like yeah this is the thing that we imagined in the beginning that was so good <laughs> i was like just like into the zone and like absorbing it i was like wait i need to ask i need to close this no <laughs> oh, i was like oh my god video. it's really good yeah Okay, I will. It sounds really good. And I totally agree with you. Yeah. Mm-hmm. A lot of times happen to me and my creative friends. There is a gap and then sometimes our skill set or um, the ability to translate what's inside of us to mm-hmm. uh, the practical uh, point of view. And then from your point of view is also like mm-hmm. how to translate from what you believe, your vision, mm-hmm. to someone else's doing right because yeah, your exactly. employees now have to get it so that's something i definitely feel like you know it's another mm-hmm. topic how mm-hmm. to learn to manage other people and mm-hmm. you are getting at this stage to do that yeah so, and you amazing. can never really learn that in school it's just like trial by fire so yeah gotta figure it out on the job before getting into the rapid fire questions with Mackenzie, i'd love to take a minute and play this video she just shared Ira Glass expressing his thoughts on the creative process. Nobody uh, tells people who are beginners, and I really wish somebody had told this to me, is that um, all of us who do creative work, like, you know, we get into it, and we get into it because we have good taste. But it's like there's a gap that for the first couple years that you're making stuff, 
what you're making isn't so good, okay? It's not that great. It's, it's, it's trying to be good. It has ambition to be good, but it's not quite that good. But your taste, the thing that got you into the game, your, your taste is still killer. And your taste is good enough that you can tell that what you're making is kind of a disappointment to you. You know what I mean? A lot of people never get past that phase. A lot of people at that point, they quit. And the thing I would just like say to you with all my heart is that m most everybody I know who does interesting creative work, they went through a phase of years where they had really good taste, they could tell what they were making wasn't as good as they wanted it to be. They knew it felt short. It didn't have this special thing that we wanted it to have. And the thing I would say to you is everybody goes through that. And for you to go through it, if you're going through it right now, if you're just getting out of that phase, you got to know it's totally normal. And the most important possible thing you could do is do a lot of work. Do a huge volume of work. Put yourself on a deadline so that every week or every month you know you're going to finish one story. Because it's only by actually going through a volume of work that you're actually going to ca catch up and close that gap. And your, the work you're making will be as good as your ambitions. In my case, like I, I took longer to figure out how to do this than anybody I've ever met. It takes a while. It's going to take you a while. It's normal to take a while. And you just have to fight your way through that. Okay? So, before I let you go, I'm going to ask you some rapid-fire questions. Okay. <laughs> Are you ready? Yeah. Okay. I kind of know this one already, but what's the nickname your mom calls you? ZZ Bell. Oh, it's different mm -hmm. than Z. Mm -hmm. That's so cute. <laughs> so if, if you could have a superpower for a day, what would it be? Um, hmm, to be invisible. If you were a color, what would that be? Blue. If you could time travel back in time, which time period would you go? Um, the 1920s. If you could choose where you were born... Well, which city would you pick? Mm, Toronto. Which city is overrated? Mm, London. Which city is underrated? Um, Cairo. The best advice you've ever given? Mm, if you have a business idea, you have to start it right away without thinking too much about it. <laughs> The worst advice you have given. Oh God. Um. Mm, to buy a really expensive pair of shoes that my friend probably didn't need. <laughs> really? Someone gave you that advice? Oh, that's advice that I've given. <laughs> Good. Yeah. Um. That's it. <laughs> Yay! Thank you so much for listening. Hope you can find something good to take away from this conversation. Please subscribe to our podcast on iTunes and SoundCloud and leave a comment or review. Your support truly means a lot to us. If you like, follow us on Instagram at Dear Seekers. We release a new episode every other Thursday. See you soon. Until then, happy seeking.